Okie dokie, let's uh, get the second hour cranked up here and ready to go because it's going to be a big one. This is Tony Bean, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and society. Also serve as Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and I'm interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church. I'm going to be going down to Columbia after the show today. There's a couple of big votes um, likely today. One will be in the House Judiciary Committee to vote on whether or not to send 3449, I believe it is, to the floor of the House for debate, which is uh, John McCravey's bill. Of course, there's a bunch of sponsors. This bill would ban abortion beginning at conception. And then uh, the Senate today is is likely going to bring up, at least begin debate, on a, a, a sort of a, a revised version of the heartbeat bill uh, that they are likely to pass by the end of the week. And so... Here we go again. <laughs> we have, as I've said before, we got, we've got a six-week bill in the Senate, a bill banning abortion beginning at conception in the House, and those two are likely to collide, and hopefully we're going to be able to come up with some kind of compromise to get a bill passed. All right, let's go back to President Biden's speech that he gave in January on the economy. Uh, he was touting the economy because the American people pretty much are not feeling all of this economic dynamic growth that the president's been touting. Um, and so I, I guess the speech was designed to sort of convince Americans that what they're feeling is not true, but to listen to what they're being told. And that's sort of how progressives operate. Um, they they want you to listen to them that you may not believe what your eyes see, you may not believe what your experience is telling you, uh, you should believe them instead of believing those things that are pretty tangible. So anyway, the president went out and CNN decided to do a, a sort of a fact check, which I applaud CNN for doing this. I mean, I, CNN's not uh, a bastion of conservative thought. Uh, they don't necessarily... You know, they're not the Fox News other channel. They're they're sort of the adversary. They generally run stories that are very positive for the Biden administration. But at least online, they did a 14-point fact check on the president's economic speech from January. And this is what they came up with. The first thing was infrastructure projects. Um, of course, President Biden is going to be touting, you'll probably hear this tonight, the bipartisan infrastructure law that he signed in 2021. And he made the statement, last year we funded 700,000 major construction projects. And he said again, 700,000 all across America, from highways to airports to bridges to tunnels to broadband. Well, first of all, there's too many zeros in that. It was 7,000 projects, which the White House had to come back later and say, yeah, uh, that was a misstatement. Well, it's one thing to say it once. It's another to say it and then come back and say it again, which is what he did. But it was obviously an overstatement of the effectiveness of the infrastructure bill. Then he talked about a cap on seniors drugs, senior drug spending. He said, well, here's the deal, which he says a lot. I put a, we put a cap and it's now in effect, now in effect as of January 1st of $2,000 a year on prescription drug costs for seniors. Well, the truth is that the cap is not in effect 
it doesn't take effect until 2025. And the maximum may be higher than $2,000 in subsequent years since it's tied to Medicare Part D's per capita cost. So the cap could go up um, based on Medicare. But the, the real point is here is that nothing went into effect in January. Most of the president's policies that he's been able to get in terms of spending caps and aid for seniors are going to happen down the road, possibly when he's out of office. Either he doesn't win re-election or something happens that he doesn't run. Okay, vaccinations under President Trump. President Biden talked about this. He was criticizing former President Trump over his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. And he said, quote, back then, only 3.5 million people had been and he even, had even had their first vaccination because the other guy and the other team didn't think it mattered a whole lot. Well, um, you know, the president, CNN says, is free to criticize Trump's vaccine rollout, but the 3.5 million fig- figure is very misleading. As of the day Trump left office in January 2021, 19 million people had received a first shot of COVID-19 according to figures published by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The 3.5 million figure Biden cited in reality is the number of people at the time who had received two shots to complete their vaccination series. So 19 million had received at least one shot, and the president turned that into 3.5 million. It's just not true. All right, he went on and he talked about billionaires and taxes in this speech, Uh, Biden said Republicans want to cut taxes for billionaires who pay virtually only 3% of their income now, 3% that they pay. Well, first of all, the 3% claim is not right. For the second time in less than a week, Biden inaccurately described a 2021 finding from economists in his own administration that the wealthiest 400 billionaire families paid an average of 8.2% of their income in federal income taxes between 2010 and 2018. After CNN asked about Biden's 3% claim on on Thursday, the White House published a corrected official transcript that uses 8% instead. Yeah, it's a little bit late to go back and publish a different number when the real impact comes when the president makes the speech. And he just lied about it. I mean, I I, want to be kind. Believe me, it gives me no joy to sit here and talk about the president of the United States lying about these things. But it was, you know, you you don't make a mistake between 3.8% of how much billionaires pay and 8.2%. I mean, that's essentially five percentage points. That's a deliberate misrepresentation of the facts. The impact of a new corporate tax. Biden cited a 2021 report from the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy think tank that found that 55 of the country's largest corporations had made $40 billion in profit in their previous fiscal year but had not paid any federal corporate income taxes. Before touting the 15% alternative corporate minimum tax that he signed into law in last year's Inflation Reduction Act, Biden said the days are over when corporations are paying zero in federal taxes. Well, at best, this is a big exaggeration. The new minimum tax will reduce the number of companies that don't pay any federal taxes, but it's not true that the days of companies paying zero are over. 
That's because the minimum tax on the book income companies report to investors only applies to companies with at least $1 billion in average annual income. According to the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, only 14 of the companies on its 2021 list of 55 non-payers reporting having U.S. pre-tax income of at least a billion dollars. In other words, there will clearly still be large and profitable corporations paying no federal income tax even after the minimum tax uh, takes effect in 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 this year, in the year, in 2022 was when they were talking about, and into 2023 rather. So again, um, it's really not possible that that's a misstatement. You know, a misstatement is or a mistake is when you forget to t- carry the two in long division. This is this is the president making demonstrably false statements in a major economic address to the American people, trying to make it sound like the economy is doing much better than than it is. Representative David Vaughn just sent me a copy of uh, of the McCravey bill that. Uh, I think uh, Representative Vaughn is on this bill as well. It's 3774. I think I said it was 3779 before. So uh, thank you, uh, Representative Vaughn, for the correction. I appreciate that. 3774 is the correct number for the bill that's going to be considered in judiciary today. Okay, um, Biden and the federal deficit. This is also some statements that he made during this economic speech back at the end of January. Noting the big increase in the federal debt under Trump, Biden said that his administration has taken a different path, and he boasted. As a result, the last two years, my administration, we cut the deficit by $1.7 trillion, the largest reduction in debt in American history. Now, that's true. It did reduce the deficit. He, the, the, the deficit has been reduced by $1.7 trillion during Biden's term in office. The problem is that that is because of all the pandemic spending that was bipartisan, that was voted on by Democrats and Republicans under the Trump administration to address the pandemic. And everybody knew that when that spending was expelled, that it was going to bring down the amount of deficit spending. And so President Biden doesn't his policies have not had anything to do with the reduction of the deficit. That's the thing that you need to know because he makes it sound like all of this great things that he's done as president has brought this down. But the the truth is Dan White, senior director of economic research at Moody's Analytics, an economics firm whose assessments Biden has repeatedly cited during his presidency, told CNN's Matt Egan in October, on net, the policies of the administration have increased the deficit, not reduced it. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, an advocacy group, wrote in September that Biden's actions will add more than $4.8 trillion to deficits from 2021 through 2031, or $2.5 trillion if you don't count the American Rescue Plan pandemic relief bill of 2021. So when when you hear President Biden, if he's if he makes this statement tonight that they brought down the deficit uh, by trillions of dollars, and he may make that statement because Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, came out yesterday, and that statement is out today as well, where he said that the biggest problem that America is facing is the national debt. 
And so President Biden, seeing that as a criticism, may take the bait and come out and talk about his debt reduction. And when he does, just know that the reduction in the deficit is not coming from his policies. His policies are actually adding to the deficit and therefore adding to the debt. But it's the natural reduction from the pandemic years that we're seeing that led to the historic drop in the amount of the deficit. So, all right, wage growth. Biden said wages are up and they're growing faster than inflation. Over the past six months, inflation has gone down every month and God willing will continue to do that. Well, Biden's claim that wages are up and growing faster than inflation is true if you start the calculation seven months ago. Real wages, which take inflation into account, started rising in mid-2022 as inflation slowed. And Biden is right that inflation has declined on an annual basis every month for the last six months. However, real wages are lower today than they were both a full year ago and at the beginning of the Biden presidency in January 2021. And that's because inflation was so high in 2021 and the beginning of 2022. So it's not true that wages were, yeah, it may be true that wages are growing slightly faster than inflation as inflation has come down, but that doesn't mean wage growth and inflation reduction does not get to the bottom line, which is that wages are still not growing at the rate of inflation. You're still not putting enough money in your pocket through the growth in wages to overcome the amount that you're paying in inflation. That puts you behind as a consumer and as a family. Okay, House Republicans and the deficit. Biden said he was disappointed that the first bill passed by the new Republican majority in the House of Representatives added $114 billion to the deficit. Biden's correct about how the bill will affect the deficit if it became law. He accurately cited an estimate from the government's nonpartisan CBO or Congressional Budget Office. The bill would eliminate more than $71 billion of the $80 billion in additional funding for the Internal Revenue Service that Biden signed into law in the Inflation Reduction Act. The Congressional Budget Office found that taking away this funding, some of which the Biden administration said will go forward, uh, go toward increased audits of high-income individuals and large corporations, would result in a loss of nearly $186 billion in government revenue between 2023 and 2032 for a net increase to the deficit of $114 billion. You get it? You see where the $114 billion increase in the deficit came? It comes because Republicans are trying to reduce the amount of money going to the IRS that is going to come after you with, your, with, with audits and get that money from you. I mean, this idea, people have looked at the Inflation Reduction Act, which was a farce, all this money going to the IRS. They said there's no way that the IRS is going to use the extra money to exclusively go after corporations. In fact, they had an opportunity when that bill was being debated. There was an amendment offered to the bill by Republicans that would have limited the IRS of using that new money to go exclusively after billionaires. And it was voted down by the Democrats. Now, if, if <laughs> that ought to tell you what the real motivation here. The real motivation for the IRS 
and the fact that they know that the vast majority of the money that they're going to get to increase money to the government is not going to come from billionaires and millionaires. It's going to come from the average American because there's so many more of us that control so much more of the wealth. And so, anyway, that's the story on that. House Republicans and taxes. Biden said that MAGA Republicans in the House want to impose a 30% national sales tax on everything from food, clothing, school supplies, housing, cars, a whole deal. He said they want to do that because they want to eliminate the income tax system. Well, here's the facts. This is a fair description of the Republicans' fair tax bill. The bill would eliminate federal income taxes plus the payroll tax, capital gains tax, and estate tax and replace it with a national sales tax. The bill describes a rate of 23% of the gross payments on a product or service, but when the tax rate is described in the way consumers are used to sales taxes being described, it's actually right around 30% as a pro-fair tax website acknowledges. It's not clear how much support the bill currently has among House Republican caucus. Notably, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy told CNN that he opposes the bill, though while seeking right-wing votes for his bid for Speaker in early January, he promised its supporters that it would be considered in committee. So here, you know, here's the President of the United States saying this is what Republicans want to do when, yeah, that idea has been around among Republicans for a national sales tax for a long time, a consumption tax, as opposed to taxes that just tax your income. And, but it's never gone anywhere, and it hasn't gone anywhere yet. It hasn't been brought up in the, in the Republican Congress. Uh, Speaker McCarthy, in order to get votes, said it would be debated in committee. Okay, well— Things can be debated in committee and then done away with. I mean, it, the, the question is, would it ever get to the floor for a vote, and would it have enough Republican support even now? And it's unlikely that it would have, because remember, you've only got a 10-vote margin for Republicans in the House. Um, if it were it, to come to a vote, I don't think it would pass, uh, because I think there are too many Republicans who have questions about it. Okay, the unemployment rate, and then we'll take a break here. Um, and come back and wrap this up. Biden claimed the unemployment rate in January is the lowest it's been in 50 years. This is true. The unemployment rate was just below 3.5% in December, which is the lowest figure since 1969. The headline monthly rate, which is rounded to a single decimal place, was reported at 3.5% in December and reported as 3.5% in, in three months of President Donald Trump's tenure in late 2019 and early 2020. But if you look at more precise figures, December was the lowest since 1979 at 3.47%. So here's the thing. The president is stretching it to say that this is the lowest in 50 years because it was as low under the Trump administration. There was no significant difference. It dropped to that rate under President Trump. So he's trying to say that the Trump administration couldn't achieve this when, in fact, the Trump administration did see the unemployment rate down as low as 3.5 percent. Let's talk about unemployment among demographic groups. What we're doing here is, if you're just tuning in, we're going through the things that President Biden said in an economic speech back in January, which are going to be sort of a, a harbinger or a forerunner 
of what he's likely to say tonight when he does the State of the Union address, because this is his economic plan. And we're discovering, according to CNN, that there were a lot of outright untruth, untrue statements made, and that at the same time there are a lot of inaccuracies and exaggerations. So let's look at what the president said about unemployment among demographic groups. Biden said the unemployment rates for black and Hispanic Americans are near record lows and that the unemployment rate for people with disabilities is the lowest ever recorded and the lowest ever in history. Well, first of all, the rate, the unemployment rate for people with disabilities has only been monitored since 2008. So to say that it's the lowest in history We're going back to 2008. It is the lowest. I mean, people with disabilities are working at a higher level than before. But to put it in historic perspective, that's since 2008. The black or African-American unemployment rate was 5.7% in December of 2022, uh, not far from the record low of 5.3%. And when was that set? In August of 2019 under President Trump. And, of course, President Biden doesn't mention this, that the lowest unemployment rate ever achieved for blacks and Hispanics in America happened under Trump's watch. Now, it was 9.2 percent in January of 2021, which is the month Biden became president. But this is what you would expect, considering the fact that we'd been through the pandemic. I mean, you have you have to remember 2019, the economy's rocking along Uh, It hasn't been affected yet by the pandemic. You have the pandemic hit in 2020, and unemployment began to rise in every demographic group until it got to extremely high levels because of businesses being shut down. And, and, uh, you know, basically, as Ben Shapiro has said many times, the government took a truck and ran it through uh, the living room of American households because of the shutting down of businesses that drove the high unemployment numbers. So it, when, when President Biden is talking about any, impre, any improvement in unemployment, uh, basically that improvement has not come because of government policy, but it's come because businesses reopened after the pandemic and people started going back to work. All right, foreclosures. Biden said that fewer families are facing foreclosures than before the pandemic. Well, first of all, that's correct. According to a report published by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, about 28,500 people had new foreclosure notations on their credit reports in the third quarter of 2022, the most recent quarter for which data is available. That was down from 71,420 people who had foreclosure notices in the fourth quarter of 2019 and in the first quarter of 2020. Again, these foreclosure notices, a lot of them were being generated and pushed forward because people were losing their jobs due to the fact that businesses were being shut down via COVID. So the fact that all these foreclosure notices are coming down is not necessarily linked to government programs that the Biden administration has put in place, but linked to the recovery that we're experiencing from the pandemic. And by the way, most economists say that the recovery that we've experienced from the pandemic would have been much better had the Biden administration not spent us to death um, as soon as he came into office. The, the economy was beginning to get its feet back under it, and then 
the Biden administration basically went out and spent a a buku of money. I don't I don't know how much a buku is, but it sounds good. A lot of money that caused the inflation rate. I mean, the inflation rate that we've suffered under for about the last 18 months has been was generated by the amount of spending that the Biden administration came into office with. So it's it's a little bit disingenuous when you're saying, "Oh, look at all these look at all this these foreclosures going down." Another thing that affected the foreclosure rate is that in uh, 2022 um, and it, 2021 into 2022, uh, the Biden administration stopped people from being able to foreclose um, and cited the pandemic as a problem. You know, there, a, a lot of companies had to go to court and say, "Look, you're." I've got people that are not paying rent. I've got people that are not paying their mortgages. And you're telling me that I can't do anything about it. They had to go to court to try to get that uh, in line. So, again, these numbers are affected more by the pandemic than they were by any action taken by the Biden administration. Health insurance coverage. More American families have health insurance today than at any time in American history. That is exactly right. An analysis provided to CNN by the Kaiser Family Foundation that studies U.S. US health care found that about 295 million U.S. residents had health insurance in 2021. That's the highest on record. And Jennifer Tolbert, the foundation director for the state health reform, told CNN this week that I expect the number of people with insurance continued to increase in 2022. The number of insured residents generally rises over time because of population growth. So in other words, yeah, we've got more people insured because of the fact that the population is growing. There's more people in the pool that are getting health insurance. It's not that uninsured people all of a sudden are jumping in and getting health insurance. Another statistic from this that Biden touted was the, the in, in talking about uh, Obamacare, the exchange. How many people were signing up for insurance in the exchange that hadn't had or that um, were not listed as having insurance? Well, here's the thing. Go back to the pandemic. How many people lost their jobs? How many people were forced into the exchange, a place where they didn't necessarily want to be because of the high deductible that, that you have? You're, you're paying less in a premium, but if you ever have to use the insurance, then it's it's going to it's going to bankrupt you because the deductible is so high in the exchange and so people were being forced into that because they lost their jobs yeah they were listed as not having insurance because when they lost their job went on unemployment they didn't have insurance either they lost their insurance with their job forced into the exchange that reduces the number of people that that are not are are uninsured but it's not the way that you want people to get insurance. You want people to have good insurance, health care insurance that's going to meet their needs, that's employer-based, and not be driven by the pandemic and the closure of businesses out of your insurance plan into a plan that you don't really want but you have to have because it's the only place you can go once you lose your job. So that pretty much says what needs to be said about health insurance coverage. And then finally, business applications. Biden said over the last two years, more than 10 million people have applied to start a small business. That's more than any two years in all of recorded American history. Well, there were 
million business applications in 2021, the highest since 2005, which is the first year for which the federal government released that information, and about 5.1 million business applications in 2022. But now what you need to remember is not every application turns into real business, but the number of high propensity business applications, that is, those that are deemed to have a high likelihood of turning into a business with a payroll, hit a record in 2021 and saw its second highest total in 2022. But now let's go back and look at President Trump's record. The last full year in office, 2020, also set a record for total and high propensity applications. And there are various reasons for that. A lot of people post-pandemic decided, I mean, when they lost their job or their uh, they were working for a company that the, the had to shut down because of COVID, and they got laid off. Then they went out and filed to become an entrepreneur because they didn't want that to happen again. They didn't want to be in a position where we had another pandemic or something that the government stepped in and forced them out of business or out of uh, being able to have a job. So they started or filed paperwork to start their own business once again. The reason for these numbers is not because President Biden's been a great president. It's not because his administration has took all of these actions that has made the environment possible for entrepreneurs. The opposite is actually true. Entrepreneurship has been created by businesses that were shut down during the pandemic and businesses that continued to suffer after Biden became president that drove the entrepreneurial numbers up. And CNN called him on it. One of the interesting things about tonight's State of the Union address is the person that's going to give the Republican response. And that's going to be Governor of Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Um, I think a lot of people that may not necessarily be all that interested in what President Biden has to say may be very interested into hearing uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders' response. Um, she's had a pretty remarkable career and there's no question that she's a rising star, actually already pretty much a superstar um, among Republicans. Now, as we look a little bit into her background, um, as we get ready to hear from her tonight, she was elected as the first female governor of Arkansas on November 8th. She took office January 10th, and she's the youngest governor in the country. She's 40 years old. I mean, I didn't realize she was that young. I knew she still had children that were uh, fairly young, but uh, she's 40. She served as President Trump's White House press secretary for two years from July 17 to early 2019, and she published a memoir, Speaking for Myself, in 2020. She's the mother of three. She graduated in 2004 from Okawachi Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, and she studied political science there and mass communications. Uh, of course, she's well-known because of her father, Mike Huckabee. Uh, they're the first father-daughter duo to win the same governorship. That's never happened before. Huckabee served as governor of uh, Arkansas from 1996 all the way to 2007. So what, she's, what has she done since she took office? Now, remember, she's only been in office um, a, a relatively short period of time. But since taking office, she signed 15 executive orders, 
including directives freezing government hiring, reducing government rules and regulations, limiting government overreach and bureaucracy, improving the integrity of the unemployment insurance program, lifting COVID-19 restrictions, and improving education. Executive Order Number 5 prohibits the teaching of critical race theory as indoctrination opposed to traditional American values. It emphasizes skin color as a person's primary characteristic, thereby restructuring segregationist values, uh, 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 resurrecting, rather, segregationist values, which America has fought so hard to reject, she said in the order. So she's put a primary emphasis on education. Uh, She's also put a primary emphasis on government getting out of the way of business in Arkansas so that business can create job opportunities for the citizens of that state. Look, that's going to be uh, – you're going to see some huge economic growth, I predict, in Arkansas, and you're also going to see some real improvements in education numbers because she's leaning into both of those areas. And the reason that she's going to be successful is she's putting conservative principles to work in those areas. Conservative principles work when it comes to government, when it comes to business, when it comes to education, when it comes to just about everything, um, the track record is pretty clear. All you have to do is look at states that are run by liberals or leftists or progressives. And if you want to even do better than that, look at cities in those states that are run by progressives, and you're going to see high crime, you're going to see high unemployment, you're going to see businesses being regulated to death. It's a mess. But you look at conservative states, And you find just the opposite. Investment in business. Investment, trying to make improvements in education. Uh, Here in South Carolina, the Senate last week, we talked to Senator Kimbrell. Uh, Senate passed the education savings account bill. And yeah, it's it's what you might call a baby step toward um, freedom in education when it comes to parents being more involved. But in South Carolina, it's been a tough deal to be able to get any kind of parental freedom in education. Part of the reason I think that this has been successful is because of the overwhelming election of Ellen Weaver, who made parental uh, choice in education a main part of her platform when she ran for office. And that's put some pressure on the legislature to follow suit. They know that's where the Ameri- the, South- the people of South Carolina are when it comes to the education of their children. So... She was. She served, of course, a stint as President Trump's press secretary. Got a lot of acclaim for that. I mean, just by all accounts, even critics admitted that she did a good job as press secretary for President Trump. Uh, the question is a return to the White House in her future. A lot of pundits are already talking about the fact that she may run for president in 2024. She says, absolutely not that her focus is on the state of Arkansas and the people of Arkansas, and she's not looking at all at 2024. She's got her her focus on on the state and in the present. Well, one thing that's absolutely for sure, if uh, she will be considered as a vice president running mate if, um, you know, for whoever gets the Republican nomination. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of people that fall in that category. I think I think part of uh, Nikki Haley's campaign for president that she's going to announce on February 15th is going to be sort of a campaign for her as a vice presidential candidate. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders would be another one. 
and I think she would be a more conservative choice. I, I really like this lady. I, I think what she's done is remarkable. She emphasizes home, family. She got beat up in the press, but she didn't allow the criticisms that she received to make her step back. In fact, she leaned in to the things that she considered to be most important. And I think that's what the American people are looking for. They're looking for genuine leadership that leans in to criticism and moves forward and doesn't allow the criticism to derail the things that they believe are best for the country. And so on that front, she's done a great job. I'm looking forward to hearing what she's got to say tonight. I think this was an excellent choice at this particular moment in history. Uh, She kind of fell off the radar a little bit, the national radar, when she stepped away from being press secretary, running for governor in Arkansas. She picked up some national attention, but not to the degree that she's about to pull to herself tonight. I predict that she's going to do an amazing job and that she's going to be catapulted into the national spotlight and the national conversation about the run for the White House, either president or vice presidential candidate in 2024 after tonight's address. All right. um, One final thing I just want to touch on here. Uh, This is a much longer conversation, and we may have a a longer conversation on the show going forward about slavery and about how slavery, according to Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project, actually created capitalism, which is ridiculous. Uh, Ben Shapiro talked a lot about a Disney cartoon that has a bunch of woke kids performing a skit around the, the theme, Slaves Built This Country. It, uh, I mean, it, it's an installment of the Proud Family series in which the kids find out that the founder of their town was a slave owner. And basically, in this skit, this, this sort of song or uh, narration that they do back and forth, in this children's program on Disney, they put out all of the misrepresentations of the 1619 Project. I mean, Disney, it, it, you know, it, it really is amazing that not only have they waded into the transgender and the LGBTQ+, but they're also leaning into this idea that the United States was, would never have come to be if it hadn't been for slavery, and they've embraced the 1619 Project, which has been debunked by just about every historian that has any kind of reputation in the country. Um, so... If there was any doubt about the radical agenda of the 1619 Project, you can be sure that Hannah Hannah Jones is is basically going out and pushing this idea that, listen to this quote, for example, our economic system was founded on buying and selling black people. Imprinted by this legacy, American capitalism is brutish and exploitive to this day. In fact, there is a direct line from antebellum cotton plantations to the 21st century Amazon warehouses. So she's comparing Amazon to cotton plantations. I'm sure that Amazon really appreciates that as a business in the 21st century. Um, Joshua John Ward backs that up and says, yeah, there's very little difference between the king of the rice planters who own more than a thousand slaves in South Carolina and Jeff Bezos. This is, this is poisonous. According to this article in National Review by Rich Lowry, he's exactly right. This is poisonous dreck. 
Slavery has been a fact of human existence throughout recorded history. Why did it suddenly create capitalism a couple of centuries ago in a few select places, namely the Netherlands, Britain, and American colonies? Why didn't the Romans create it, the Vikings, the Spanish? It's true that slavery and cotton production played a large role in the American economy, but they weren't determinative. As Philip Magnus of the American Institute for Economic Research points out, slave-produced cotton and its derivatives accounted for 5 or 6% of the total GDP before the Civil War. Now, are we supposed to believe that 5 or 6% GDP was the most influential thing that led to capitalism in the history of America? That's ridiculous, which is can be said of all of the 1619 Project. It is a rewriting of American history to try to convince everybody that America is not a great country. It's a racist country that was founded on the backs of slaves. And that's, that is an exaggeration at, at, at the best, and at the worst, it's just an outright lie. In the North, Abraham Lincoln observed free workers made the most of themselves while the mandrians of the slave South undertook to shift their share of the burden of labor onto the shoulders of others, and work itself was considered vulgar and ungentlemanly. In other words, the plantation owners in the South, they couldn't be responsible for capitalism because they thought that work was beneath them. People that make capitalism work are the workers, the people that go out and, and work every day and take pride in what they do and do it well. For his part, the influential apologist for the slave South, George Fitzhugh, argued that the doctrine of laissez-faire is at war with all kinds of slavery. If slavery was the basis of capitalism, one wonders, why did the capitalist North dare to wage a war to destroy the seedbed of its own prosperity? Why didn't the region that was the great source of capitalism win the war based on its superior economic wherewithal rather than getting ground, by, um, getting ground down by a more financially proficient, productive North? Finally, how did American capitalism survive the end of chattel slavery? That, all of those questions, none of them are presented or answered or treated fairly in Nicole Hannah-Jones' 1619 Project. It's all hype. It's all designed to make you hate America and to make a case for reparation, reparations, which San Francisco has still got this proposal floating around out there to give descendants of slaves $5 million each, which would bankrupt the city. Um, and how in the world are you going to be able to trace those records in any event? Uh, we're going to talk about that in a later show. All right. Have a great day today. Um, be down in Columbia today. I'll let you know. Hope you'll tune in, and I'll let you know what happens in Columbia today, tomorrow, if you listen to the program. God bless you, and have a good day.